Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. Amen. Thank you. I don't know how many times I've heard that song in my life. It's been a lot, but every time I hear it, it's really, really meaningful. Thank you. What a great song. And you did not know, but that song fits perfectly with the message today. Absolutely perfectly. God knew. Open your Bibles to Judges chapter 17. Probably been a while since you've had a message from Judges. Judges chapter 17. That's the Old Testament. Today's message was originally preached um, by... um, Let me look at it. Well, see, the problem is his last name's like his first name, and so I was getting confused. It's Paris Reedhead. I know very little about him. Uh, I knew nothing of him until a friend of mine, a pastor friend from um, to the east of us here, suggested that I listen to this message. And when I listened to it, uh, my, my, my jaw just dropped, and it impacted me greatly. And in fact, every time I've listened to it over the last couple of weeks, it, it's, it's one of those where, um, you ever had a piece of cheesecake that was so good that you take a bite and you just want to make that bite linger? And so you, you don't really want to swallow it, you just want it to hit every taste bud you have because it's, you want to make sure you get every bit of flavor out of it? That, to me, is, is where this message would stand. Now, to be honest, I'm not sure that, uh, that he had other messages that were this powerful. I've listened to one or two from him, but um, this was just one of those moments, I think, where God was, was in the room and God had ordained this message for that time and place. And since, it has, it has spread all over the world and it's had impact all over the world. And, and the reason, I think, is because he's saying what... What so many of us have thought, we just never have necessarily put it into so many words. And so this message is entitled, Ten Shekels and a Shirt. And it's found in the book of Judges, chapter 17 and then into 18. Now a man, verse 1 of chapter 17. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother. I hear pages. I'm going to let you all turn there. It's okay. Is that the little mermaid under the sea? (laughs) It was for me. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) Your wife is up here. You want me to you want me to send her over? (laughs) So I want to know who's calling you on a Sunday morning when they know you're in church. (laughs) You'll know a little bit. (laughs) Welcome to church, folks. All right, Judges chapter 17, starting in verse 1. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from you, uh, and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. 
When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I will give it back to you. So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make an idol. And it was put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine and he had an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right or did as they saw fit. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living in the clan of Judah, left the town to search for, for some other place to stay. And on his way he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. And Micah asked him, where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem of Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, live with me and be my father and my priest. I'll give you ten shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. In those days, Israel had no king. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking a place of their own where they might settle, because they had not yet come into the inheritance among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites sent five of their leading men to Zorah and Eshtal to spy out the land and explore it. And these men represented all the Danites. They told them, go and explore the land. And so they entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah where they spent the night. And when they were near Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. So they turned in there and asked him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Why are you here? He told them what Micah had done for him, and he said, He has hired me, and I am his priest. And then they said to him, Please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. And the priest answered them, Go in peace. Your journey has the Lord's approval. And then on down to 14, Then the five men who had spied out the land of Laish said to their fellow Danites, Do you know that one of these houses has an ephod? some household gods, and an image overlaid with silver. Now you know what to do. So they turned in there and went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's place and greeted him. The 600 Danites, armed for battle, stood at the entrance of the gate, and the five men who had spied out the land went inside and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods, while the priest and the 600 armed men stood at the entrance of the gate. When the five men went to Micah's house and, and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods, the priest said to them, What are you doing? They answered him, be quiet, don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve the tribe and that you serve a tribe and clan in Israel as priest rather than just one man's household? The priest was very pleased. He took the ephod, the household gods, and the idol and went along with the people. Putting their little children and the livestock and their possessions in front of them, they turned away and left. And so what we have here is a story of the household of Micah and of the tribe of Dan. And it's a peculiar story. It's one that we wouldn't necessarily read and, and, and have a whole lot of meaning to us until we read between the lines and see what's actually going on. So a little bit of background. Micah was unable and his family were unable to get to Jerusalem because the Amorites controlled the area. They would not let uh, passage from, from one place to the other. And so Micah said to his mother, Mother, we need, uh, or 
I, I have stolen the, the or, or I have the, the money that was, t- that was taken from you, so I'm going to give it to you. And the mother said, you know, this is consecrated to the Lord, so let's, let's use it to worship God. And so they gave 200 shekels to build an ephod. And essentially what was happening here was Micah was building his own temple. He couldn't go to Jerusalem, so he thought the next best thing was, I'll just bring Jerusalem to me. So he built a temple. He did it the best he could. But he also looked around and saw that there were other household gods, and so he shopped and got some of the other gods and pulled them into the temple. And then as you read the story, he made his son the priest. Essentially, he figured that he needed a little religion in his life. He didn't want to live his life without religion, but he wasn't quite clear on what religion he needed to have. Now, by, by background, he was a Jew. Although he saw these other gods in the neighborhood, and he said, you know, I've got my God, but it wouldn't hurt to have a little bit extra just in case mine isn't enough. And so it was a little bit of the church, a little bit of God, a little bit of the world, kind of mixed together just to hedge his bets. And then this young Levite happens to wander through town. Now, the Levite was from Jerusalem. And, and, and Levites were provided for by the people of God. That was part of the covenant that God made with him, that there were 12 tribes in the tribe of Levi would be the priestly people, and so they would get a portion of, of all the other tribes so that their, their needs could be taken care of, so that they didn't have to do the work. They could actually just be the priest for God. They could be the, the religious leaders. But the Levite didn't feel like he was making enough, or he, for some reason, wanted to, to move out and, and, and explore the land, and so he left his home, and he wandered through Micah's place, and Micah said, so, so what are you doing here? And the Levite told him the story, and Micah said, well, this is perfect. I happen to have my own temple. So I tell you what, if you'll be my priest and my family's priest, then I will give you 10 shekels, and I'll give you a suit of clothes, and I'll give you food for the year. And so the Levite sold himself to this man Micah to be his personal priest for 10 shekels and a shirt. And so... The Amorites were the ones who were controlling the land. And since the Danites could not get into Jerusalem, they were looking for a place to settle. And they happened to send some spies through and came across Micah and his family. And while they were there, they recognized this Levite's voice. And when they recognized the voice, they said, hey, will you inquire of God for us? So he inquired and he said, look, that's a place over there that you need to go to. They're defenseless. Leave us alone. But you go over there, you can take the land and you can make it your home. And so they marched through, and as they came through, essentially they said to, uh, to the young Levite, wouldn't it be better to serve a clan? Wouldn't it, or wouldn't it be better to serve, serve a tribe, a bunch of people, rather than just one family? I mean, wouldn't you like to move up in the world? I mean, wouldn't you like to have a little bit bigger church? Wouldn't you like to have a little more influence? And the Levite thought to himself, well, you know, that probably makes a lot of sense. And so he took the things out of the temple, and he carried them along with the Danites, and so the story goes. So essentially what we're talking about here, and how this relates to us, is this. In our lives, we have to decide if God is a means or an end. So many of us have a God who serves us. But God doesn't serve us, we serve God. Would I be out of line to talk to you about a utilitarian religion? A convenient God? A useful faith? 
one that, that we have as a part of our life because it gets us something. It's really pragmatism, right? It's really an issue of, well, how am I going to make this life work? The issue of pragmatism has been around for quite a long time, but we pretty much live and die by it now. We look at things and say, if it works, it must be right. If it, if it, if it, if it works, it must be good. If it works, it must be true. And so our basis of measurement so many times, not just in our lives, but in our church, in our business, it's, it's pragmatism. The proof is what? In the pudding. Does it work? And so when we look at our lives, we have to decide, is God going to be a means to an end, or is he going to be the end? To be a means to an end is really pragmatism. It's really this idea of, well, these things that I've done so far, they've worked for me, so I'm just going to live like that. I'm just going just to have that as my faith. But I want to tell you that pragmatism is not of God. In fact, if you, if you measure the Bible by pragmatism, measure the heroes of the Bible by pragmatism, what you'll find is that most of our heroes were horrible failures. Think about that. The people in the scripture who, whose lives didn't work out so well according to the world's standards, they were failures. Look at Noah. Noah was a great boat builder. I mean, he, he built a boat enough to carry hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of animals, but he was a horrible preacher. I mean, if you judged his life based on his preaching, he had, what, seven converts? That's all who would come into the ark. So for 120 years... His building was good, but his preaching was bad. In our, in our minds, if we measure him by the pragmatic standards of does it work, we would say, no, he was a horrible failure. What about Jeremiah? Jeremiah was a good preacher, but he also uh, had people who just ignored him and didn't listen to him. He said, whoa, whoa, uh, he said the wo- word woe more than perhaps any other prophet there was, Right? He offended just about every social structure there was. He offended the kings. He offended the the, the people. He offended the the church leaders. He offended everybody. And so even as good as a preacher as he was, he was a horrible failure. And in fact, none of us would want him as a pastor of our church. And what about Jesus himself? If we judge Jesus by the standards of how we judge today's preachers, we would have to declare Jesus was a failure, right? Right? I mean, he actually did speak to thousands and thousands, but at the end of the day, he could only get a few hundred to follow him, right? There were only about 120, and then when he appeared, he appeared to just five or 600, right, at the end? By the way, his preaching got him killed. His preaching made, made everybody angry. And so when we judge things by our, by our worldly standards, by, well, if it works, it's good. If it works, it's right. If it works, it's true. Then we come to the conclusion that the things of God just just aren't really, well, they're just not up to standard. And so we feel like, well, since the thing, the, the way God does stuff is not up to standard, let's, let's pull a little bit from the world and let's tweak it and make it better. Are y'all following me here? We do this so often. We look at what God has said, and in our minds, we don't think there's enough result from it, and so we decide to, to, to elevate it just a little bit, make it a little more powerful, and so we reach into the world and we bring it in and we say, oh, that's better. Now it looks like everything else. Now it's successful. But I want to say to you that we have got to choose, once again, 
how we will measure success. We have to choose how we will measure our relationship with God. Is God a means to an end or is God the end? Will you sell yourself to the highest bidder? Is your faith really about ten shekels and a shirt? Now, Paris Reedhead tells us that the, the foundation of this comes from, uh, really goes all the way back into the 1850s. Before the 1850s, uh, shortly before there, there was revival that was happening in the Americas. Uh, Finney was preaching, and, and there, there was repentance, and there was a, a movement of God. And so, of course, anytime God is at work, the enemies at work just as hard. And there came about this thing of higher criticism. Do you all remember studying this in school? Higher criticism were those really smart people who said, look, we've got to think more deeply about these things. It's where the question of who Jesus is um, became the question on the table. They said it like this, the search for the historical Jesus. We want to we discover the real Jesus of the Bible because there was confusion as to whether or not he really could be a, a, a God who did miracles. He was really just a good man, they say. He wasn't really God in the flesh. This was the time where Voltaire said, the Bible, before long, will be only found in museums. Guess what? Voltaire is dead, and the Bible is still very much alive. It's when Nietzsche said, God is dead, and the way that you have uh, ultimate fulfillment is through power. And so Nietzsche's idea was you, you, you find fulfillment, you find uh, the purpose in life by, by power. Because after all, you've you got you to do something with your life. You've got to have a reason to live. And so if God is out of the picture, then, well, what else do you do? Oh, I should mention here that we would call this time period, or we would say about this time period, that this is where the introduction of humanism came onto the picture. I want to say to you this. Pragmatism is a direct result of humanism. You know what humanism is? Humanism says that the chief end of man is his own happiness. I want you to think deeply on this. Because here's what's convicting. We live oftentimes with, with this as our standard. What will make me happy? We do that in every area of our life. and our, We seem to think if it will make me happy then it's good. If it'll make me happy, then it's right. If it'll make me happy, then it's true. And all of this came about, well, it's always been around, but it, it came to light about the 1850s when it started. And you had Voltaire, and you had Nietzsche, and then you had, um, you had uh, John Dewey, who, inter who, who affected our school system. You're shaking your head like you know something about it, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, the Dewey Decimal System might have been a great system, but his philosophy was just leave kids alone. There's, there's no real absolutes. We can't, really, we can't really have standards for them. Let's let them discover who they are because, after all, happiness is the ultimate goal. And we want them to be happy, and therefore the only way to be happy is for them to discover who they really are. You see the effects of that today, don't you? Today, I'd, I'd mention this Tuesday or Wednesday night, today in California... Uh, in some places, if you use a pronoun, he or she, you are out of line. You can only use the pronoun they or them because you don't want to offend anybody. 
Now, I digress on that, but I'm just telling you, we have this today because of this then. Because at some point, we decided that God was useful to us in life. At some point, we decided that God was a means to an end. He wasn't the end. Because not only in the philosophical world did we have these questions of humanism, but in the church, we began to have these questions. The church started to look at God from the viewpoint of the world. And so because the viewpoint of the world was the chief end of man is his own happiness, the church said, well, if the chief end of man is is his own happiness, we have to have religion in here somewhere. And so there were two camps. On the one camp were the liberals. The liberals were those who said, look, we don't really believe that we can talk much about the afterlife. We don't really believe we can say much about who God is because after all, the Bible's just kind of a... A book, it's not really the authoritative word of God. But I'll tell you what, if you let church stay a part of your life, we may not be, answered, may, we may not be able to answer end-of-life questions, but we can help your life be a better life. As Reedhead says, we'll put springs on your carriage and give you a more comfortable ride. And so you can track this. You can look at denominations and see that the majority of their teaching, the majority of their existence is so that the people in the church can have a better life. And so God is just this token of helping them along in the way. God is an afterthought. He's just a, a good luck charm, if you will. By the way, I heard somebody say that if you treat God like a good luck charm, if, if you treat him like a, uh, like a rabbit's foot, don't forget the rabbit lost a foot. So it wasn't all that lucky for him, right? So you've got to watch it. So you have the liberals on this side, and then over here you have the fundamentals. Now the fundamentals were just as guilty, but they spiritualized it. The fundamentals said, well, look, we, we do believe that the Bible has some things to say. I mean, we do, do believe that the Bible talks about faith, and the Bible talks about love, and the Bible talks about hope. And so what the fundamentals did in large part is they said, look, In order for men to be happy, they've got to have these things of God in their life. And the church started to center around how God could give people a better life. And we find that even today in the way we share the gospel. Have you ever had somebody say, do you know if today if you died, you would spend eternity in hell? Well, would you like to not go to hell? I want you to think about how much of our Christian pitch, right, how much of what we teach is not about God, but it's about us. If you'll give your life to Christ, you won't spend eternity in hell. If you'll give your life to Christ, he'll give you joy. If you'll give your life to Christ, he'll give you peace. If you'll give your life to Christ, he'll give you hope. If you become a part of the church body, then you'll have friends and you'll never be alone. And so, essentially... In our words, now we may not mean this in our heart, but in our words, if somebody were not not very attentive to it, they would think that the gospel is all about us. And the whole point of this message is this. The gospel is not about us. God is not a means to an end. We cannot just take spiritual terms, put them into our own life, and at the end of the day expect that God is simply going to be a way for us to move from a family to a tribe so that we can up our game in life, so we can have a little more, so we can can have a little more influence. 
The gospel is not about you and me not going to hell. The gospel is not about you and me um, um, having peace. The gospel is about the glory of God. The glory of God. That is the, the highest purpose in life. So the chief end of man is not to find happiness. Don't get me wrong. We will find happiness when we find Christ. But, it, but, but the happiness is not the product. It is the byproduct. If you hear nothing else today, hear this. We serve Jesus not because of what he does for us or can do for us. We serve Jesus because he deserves it. That's it. We give worship to Jesus this morning because he's worthy of worship. Not because it makes us feel warm and, com- and, and comfortable. Not because it's something we've always done. It's because he is the God of the universe. And because he is God, he deserves all of our worship, whether we get anything out of it or not. And so the shift that has to happen in our hearts is we have to stop thinking of faith as a way to have better life and start thinking of faith as giving God what he deserves. The chief, chief end of man or the chief purpose of man is to give glory to God. And that changes everything. Now, we still use some of the same language. We still have some of the same conversations. But it's the motivation of the heart that changes. We see this so often in missions. And I'm guilty of this myself. I'm going to go do missions so I can take the gospel so that those poor people who've never heard the gospel can have a chance to not spend eternity in hell. I mean, that sounds good, right? I mean, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is the fact that I am accusing God of being unjust as if if God needs help in that area. Think of what I just said. I'm going to take the gospel to a place because they've not heard so that when they finally hear, they can have a chance to have their sins forgiven and go to heaven. That's not the reason for missions. Now, is it, is, it, is it part of missions? Sure, but that's down here. The reason for missions is because Jesus bought them. He suffered and he died. He lived a life that was brutal. He hung upon a criminal's cross, and when his blood was shed, he purchased the redemption of all men. And so for me to go share the gospel in another country is not so that they can go to heaven, but it's so that Jesus can receive the reward of his own suffering. Do you see the difference? It's different. Because the one is me going for them, and the other is me going for him. And that's why we should do everything. I should preach Not so that you can have truth, but so that Jesus can be glorified. Because it's about him. It's not about you. It's not about me. I should sing because as I sing, not not so that you can get get, get blessed or not so that you can hear a good song. I should sing because it's, it's the least I can do to worship my God. Because I give it to him and because it's his, he then gives it to you. We simply need to change the way we see this. We need to understand God doesn't need us, 
God doesn't have to have us. He is perfectly capable as God to do whatever He wants to do, however He wants to do it. And I'll say to you that when we live our life with God as just a a means to an end, we shortchange the power of the gospel. One thing I've been guilty of before, and I pray I'm not guilty of it uh, in the future, is asking God for more power. Lord, give give me more power. Now, why would I ask that? Lord, give me more power so when I preach, people will, will listen. It'll change hearts. What's the motivation behind that? So many times if we look at the, the, the heart of hearts of our prayers, we're asking God to do something not so that God could be glorified, but so that we could do more. Think about that. Now, I, I can speak about preachers because I am one. But I will tell you that the number of preachers who ask God to bless the message, they're asking God not to bless the message so that Jesus will be glorified. They're asking God to bless the message so that after the church service, they can go home and say, man, did you see what God did today? Which really was saying, man, did you see how God used me today? It's about ego. Amen? You all all right? Is this making sense? But lest we pick on preachers too much, what about you? How many times do you ask God to do something in your life because at the end of the day, if you were to strip off all of the veneer, it's about you doing something. And you just need a little extra power from God because you recognize that He's useful in getting things done. What if we serve Jesus regardless of what we got out of it? What if we offered our worship to Jesus even if we knew we were still going to hell? What if we said, Jesus, I will serve you, I will give my life for you, I will let every part, every fiber of my body be committed to you even if you send me to hell because you deserve my worship. Now you understand that that's not not what he does, but, but that should be the motivation of our heart. We worship because he's worthy. Not because he's done something. How much of your worship is a response to what he's given you rather than a response to who he is? I can't answer that for you. I can only answer that for me. And I can tell you that this week as I've been trying to pray more consistently following the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. I find myself beginning to thank God and I have to catch myself because the things I want to thank God for are the things that he's done. And I have to step back and say, no, Lord, I'm not going to thank you for what you've done. I want to thank you for who you are. God, you are faithful. God, you are good. God, you are holy. God, you are right. God, you are perfect. You see, from a humanist perspective, If we think that the world is about us, if we think that the chief end of man, the ultimate goal of man is happiness, we can't see God as holy. In fact, we see God as unfit to be God in some ways because if our happiness is the chief goal, then how could God send good people to hell? That's where the accusation comes against God. And I want you to just consider how foolish that is anyways to accuse God of being unjust. Have you all been listening to the news? 
Have you been listening to public discourse about God? How many accusations against God as if God is not fit to be God? And it's filtered down all the way down even into the church. I say to you that God is the same God of yesterday, today, and forever. He's not changed His power. He's not forgotten a single name. He's not weakened in any area. With one single twitch of his finger, he can do anything the entire world could do if they worked together. All it would take is that much of God's finger. I say to you today that God is God. And because of such, he deserves every fiber of worship that we could possibly give him. Regardless of what we get out of it. And so as you think about Micah and the Levite, think about your own life. Have you formulated a faith that fits you because you, you, you just feel like you don't want to live life without God? So you put a little bit of this and a little bit of this and you've hired your own priest and you've said, this is good, this is good. Now the Lord will bless me because I've included him in my plans. Are you like the Levite who's looking for something more? It's better to serve a clan, a whole, whole, whole group of people than just a family, so it's a better offer. I'm just going to move on along. I suspect that a lot of, this is going to hurt, I suspect that a lot of church hopping that we see in our, in our community is a result of this. Well, I... I'm not getting my needs met here, so I'm going to go get my needs met there. Well, I'm not getting my needs met there, so I'm going to go get my needs met there. Does that make sense? Because a lot of it is about me. Now, there's some real reasons to leave church. I'm not saying you should never. I'm saying there are, there are times, though, that, that we need to really take a look and say, is this about me or is this about God? What about your giving? You gave today when the offering plate was passed. Did you give because it's what you're supposed to do? What did you give because you're hoping that that whole uh, tenfold blessing will come, about, come back? You know, just kind of hedge your bets because after all, God's right on a lot of other things. So I'm going to give and, and I'm just, I'm just, I just want to see, you know, is, is God really going to bless me more? Or did you give because you say, you know what, everything I have is his. And so I, I joyfully and willfully give because he's worthy. And see, we could, we, we sang today. The songs that we sang, did you read those words and did you sing these words because these words were expressing the greatness and the glory of God or did you read and sing these words because, well, everybody else is singing? I don't want to be the only one not singing. By the way, it makes me feel good to sing. All those things might be true, but at the end of the day, we sing for one reason alone, because he's worthy. You know why repentance is so important in salvation? Repentance is so important because it's only through repentance do we see that we are not worthy and he is. Repentance is saying, Jesus, I need you because you are holy and I am not. I think too much about the gospel has been preached and taught and shared that is absent and void of repentance. 
a recognition of who God is and of our dire condition. George Whitfield said it this way as he was preaching to a group in Boston Commons, several thousand people. He said they were monsters of iniquity. Monsters of iniquity. Now, if I told you you were monsters of iniquity, you would be mad at me and you'd want to throw me out. But do you see your own heart? Do you see how far from God we really are left to our own devices and measures? Do you see how offensive you are to God? Apart from the grace of God, you are offensive. And see, just that alone makes us angry to hear it because how can you dare judge my heart because I know every human heart is wicked when left to its own devices. And yet the God of grace has reached down and said, I bought you. In the wickedness that you find yourself in, I bought you. I endured the agony of hell for you. I suffered and I died for you. Your worship to me is simply the reward of my own suffering. When we begin to see God this way, it changes everything. Our prayers become different. Our preaching becomes different. Our conversation becomes different. Do you want to know why preaching is not the same today as it was then? I will tell you why. It's because we have lost the view of the glory of God. I want you to go back and I want you to listen to sermons on TV today. And I want you to note how many of them are pandering to people's feelings and how many of them are pointing to the glory of God. Do it. And I must say that I'm guilty like all the rest. Why? Because we want people to come back, right? You know what I've discovered? I've discovered we, we can grow a church, but we can't grow a church. We can grow a church. We could do the right stuff, say the right things. We could offer the right amenities, and we could fill this place up. All you got to do is a little bit of the world, a little bit of Jesus, just make it palatable, make it acceptable, make people feel good, bring them on in. We could pack the place out, and everybody could say, "Woo, go God, but it would be a counterfeit gospel. But I would say that there are times in history when the power of God is so strong and the move of God is so great that people flock to hear the gospel because they sense what is real. Two Moravian young men heard of a slave owner who owned an island in the West Indies. And, he, and, and they had heard that this slave owner was an atheist and declared that no Christian, no missionary, no pastor would ever step foot on the island. They had 3,000 or so slaves on the island working for this man. These two young Moravians felt the call of God to sell themselves into slavery. And so they approached the atheist and they said, we want to we work for you. We are going to sell our freedom. So they did. It was pennies. 
So they sold themselves to a lifetime of slavery to this atheist because they believed God wanted to be glorified among these slaves on this island. And so they locked arms and they were standing on the back of the ship as it was leaving the port. And these two young Moravians' families couldn't understand it. They didn't understand why they were going. They certainly were not happy necessarily that they were never going to see them again. And then they heard these words that became the call of all Moravian missionaries. These two young men, as they had arms locked on the side of the ship, and as the, the ship was almost out of, uh, of, of, of earshot, one of the young men said, May the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb who was slain receive the reward of of his suffering. And from that sparked a movement of missionaries from the Moravians who went all over the world, not so they could bring Jesus to a people who needed the gospel, but so they, they could declare the glory of God to people who might not have understood it. Do you see the difference? Folks, I don't know how you and I apply this because there's not necessarily anything we can do. Not, it's not like we can go change something or, or do something because this is truly something that is in the heart. How we view God, it, it's an issue of the heart and it's an issue of the mind. But at the end of the day, it's a, it's a willful decision for us to stop looking at ourselves and start looking at the gospel. Jesus, I'm doing this only because you deserve it. Everything else is a byproduct. And I feel compelled to tell you, don't hear, don't hear what I'm not saying. There is peace that passes understanding. There is joy that's indescribable. There is hope that comes from the gospel. All of those things, yes, but that's not the why. The why is because Jesus is Lord. Does that make sense? Father in heaven, I pray that you would clarify in our hearts the gospel. Lord, I pray that as, as, we, as we wrestle with this, you would help us to know how good you are, how holy you are. Father, may we be willing, like these two young Moravians, to truly let go of all that we hold on to for the sake of the gospel. May we truly be willing to say to you. Yes Lord. Regardless of what the next step is. Lord that, that we would just be so convinced of your holiness. And your goodness. And your glory. That all we want to do is be sure that we're in your presence. And where that is really doesn't matter. Father would you clarify this in our hearts. Father, would you shake us, make us uncomfortable if we have treated you as a utilitarian God, if we've had a Christianity that's, that's just helpful to us rather than understanding the true nature of who you are. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name.
Thank you for listening. You can find out more about First Baptist Church Gulf Breeze at fbcgulfbreeze.org.